Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. I'm on a journey to get better in all areas of life, from wellness and mental health to career and relationships and so much more. I know getting better isn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier when you can do it together. Welcome to Better Together with me, Maria Menunos. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Together. When you know better, you get better. That is our goal here every single day. Heel Squad, we've got something special in store for you this week. We want to invite you into our inner circle, our inner Heel Squad. So we're going to share a little taste of what it looks like to be part of our exclusive Patreon community. So if you didn't know, uh, we host monthly heel events for our members with all the world leading experts and healers that you hear on this show. The cool thing is, is some of these people don't even take clients anymore. So the fact that we can have them on this one-on-one Zoom experience is really, really cool. These live events have made such an impact on us and our community. So we wanted to show you guys a little bit about what that's like. I would get your notebook ready and um, and get ready. So the difference between the show and the Patreon is it's more intimate. We're on a Zoom together once a month. It's super, super cool. We get to kind of know each other. So we know everyone's faces and names now, and it's such yeah. a cool vibe and experience. It's intimate. Um, it's one-on-one. Um, you know, we're able to ask questions. We're able to engage with each other. It's really sweet. I really love it. It's fun. And I love my favorite part, honestly, about it, Maria, is like our Patreon community has like all become each other's best friends, right? Like each other's accountability partners. We just had a recent event with Agape and this one girl, she needed help. And we had another Patreon member jump in and say, oh, I got you. Like they live on different coasts. They would have never known each other. It's really special and it's really cool. It's like you have instant best friends, right? An instant community. And, um, you know, we've done different things for our Patreon community, whether we've given them gifts for my closet because I get so many things sent to me. So I like to share. Um, We have some guests that we're keying up now that um, are hoping to mentor uh, a few lucky people through the Patreon community. So we get extra special stuff in there for everybody. And uh, we really love it. 
And so we wanted to give you a taste of what it's like to be inside that world. Obviously, you're not going to see the visual. You'll just hear these episodes. Um, But if you want to be a member, Queen, take it away. Give them the instructions. Oh, If you guys want to be a member, you can go to mariamenunos.com where you can sign up for Patreon on there. Or even an easier way is at the link in the Better Together Instagram bio. Click on it and click join Patreon. And then this is the $10 and up tier that gets these events, which you guys, I can't even express to you how ridiculous that is. Because I mean, I even, some of these guests that come on, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to work with them. And then I'm like, oh God, like Maria said, A, they don't even take clients. A lot of them don't. And if they do, it's really expensive. So we get, they give us their time and it's so special and so valuable. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, but I feel like when they're with us, they feel safe too. Like we've had a couple guests that have opened up, you know, in ways that they wouldn't typically on a normal show. Right. It's like, cause they feel comfortable. They're Mm -hmm. just on this live zoom in this community with our people. So anyways, it's just, it's really special. I know I do. Yeah. I feel super safe in there yeah. and and free. So friends, you are this week an honorary member of the Patreon community. If you want to join, like Kelsey said, the easiest thing is go to Better Together with Maria on Instagram, click the link in bio and you can join easily or actually the summary of this episode. There you go. Duh, there click you the go. link in the summary of this episode, <laughs> even easier. And join us for $10 a month. You can be in on these events and be a part of this really cool group. And um, I'll let Kelsey take it from here. So when Mark was on the actual Better Together show, a lot of you said we need to have him back. We need to have regular monthly episodes with him. Rightfully so, because honestly, Mark is one of the most incredible experts I believe we've had on. He does not BS. He does not beat around the bush. So today we talk about how we can own our shit. That that was the name of this heel event that Mark and I came up with. It was owning your shit so you can have a good, healthy, and strong relationship. You know, I feel like I'm even in that place right now, right? Where it's like, I'm ready. I'm ready for that good, healthy, strong relationship. But I got to own some of my shit before getting there or else it's not going to work. So we talk about that. We talk about victimhood, triggers, healing defensiveness, codependency, guilt and shame, and how to build a sacred relationship with yourself. Because honestly, you guys know this, but I'm saying it again. Building a healthy relationship, a healthy and sacred relationship with yourself is the key to a healthy and sacred relationship with someone else. So listen up, take notes. Let me know what you guys learned because I know I learned a lot. All right. Enjoy. I know you all were very excited. Mark has been one of my favorite episodes ever as he really put me on blast and made me understand why um, relationships are hard for me. (laughs) So I'm really excited for you to be here today, Mark, and teach us all how we can own our shit. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, I think what often happens in the context of relationship is that we do feel like we're on blast in some, I feel so young saying that. I'm not even sure exactly what it fully means, but I think it's <laughs> feeling called out. Uh, I like the term feeling called forward because I think that's different. You know, it's like when we invite someone's behavior to change or we are invited to change just by something we learn. Um, you know, why we titled it Own Our Shit is ultimately every friction you experience relationally, but I'd say it's true of life is teaching you where you need to grow. It's teaching you where you need to change, where you need to expand, where you need to learn. You know, I remember hearing um, Jordan Peterson say once, so regardless of your uh, views on him, 
Uh, he said that in every moment of a trigger is an invitation to mastery. And I really think about that a lot, that, that when we are triggered, there's a hypersensitivity in a moment and we can learn from that moment. If we're actually willing to go into the trigger and learn from it, not only its origins, I don't think that's always necessary, but it's what skill set would I have needed when this originally occurred? What would I need to learn to honor that moment, to honor it today? Because, you know, often I'll work with people and they'll say, you know, I thought I'd fix that shit. And then I got triggered the other day. And, you know, that's not a, healing a trigger isn't a trigger going away, although I think we'd like that to be true. It's actually learning from the trigger and changing our behavior because triggers are actually really protective. They're actually really important. You know, they're basically saying that there's a framework that I recognize, or there's a feeling that I recognize or a situation that I recognize and I'm hypersensitized to it. And I've seen this pattern before and before it led to pain, suffering, hurt, trauma, whatever it might be. And so I, I'm afraid of recreating it. And so I might be hyper reactive when I get triggered or I might just avoid everything when really the way through is learning from it. So that's why we call it own our shit. Because if you're willing to see relationships as a place that are inviting you to liberate yourself and to heal, then you're actually liberated just through that perspective. When you see that you're being informed, you know, so much I think of our relational journey is repeated patterns. You know, it's just like going through the same thing and we find ourselves in the same circumstances and the same feelings and the same everything. And they're like, you know, I could give two different people Tinder and one will end up matched with totally different people than another and blame that their Tinder has a virus on it and doesn't have any good matches and the other one will find good matches. And so it shows you that what some of us might recognize as red flags, other people don't. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to actually feel ashamed of about that. It's actually more to go, hey, where did I learn that red flags are normalized and are actually green flags? Like, where did I learn that dysfunctional behavior is actually not even something I should pay attention to? Or, um, you know, that what I'm attracted to might not be good for me. You know, I, I, I hear that a lot from people where they'll say, but I can't help who I have chemistry with. And it's like, yeah, but having chemistry doesn't mean you need to choose it. Like you don't always have to go towards what tingles your loins. You know, you do get to decide where you go and in what direction you take your life. And I find often we're drawn to similar people in order to learn how to say no to them. You know, if we're, if we grew up in chaos and unreliability, then we might find ourselves attracted to people who are chaotic and unreliable because it's familiar. You know, our nervous system goes, this is a familiar template. And we're like, yeah, but it, we know where this goes. And our body's like, yeah, but like we know, at least we know. And it's safe. But even though it's not safe, see, this is kind of the mindfuck of relationships and communication is that it might not actually be safe, but we find ourselves in the circumstances because the behaviors are predictable. And so instead of putting ourselves in unpredictable outcomes or situations, and I'm not talking about unsafe, I just mean behavioral changes, um, we often repeat them. Hey, Hill Squad and Better Together fam. 
It's been a tough year, but we hear from so many of you just how much our content is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. Our team works so hard to deliver this life-changing content, and a lot of you guys ask, how can I have a bigger role in our Heal Squad community, or how can I do my part to help Better Together continue to uplift even more people? First of all, thank you for that sentiment, and we're so grateful for this community. If you could help us by giving us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts, that's amazing. Second, you could join the Better Together with Maria Menounos Instagram page. Third, you could share the show with a friend in need. And finally, for as little as $10 a month, please join our Patreon to get monthly live heal events with world-class healers, ad-free episodes of our show, and even weekly bonus episodes exclusive to Patreon. Getting better isn't easy, but it is a whole lot better when we can do it together. We love and appreciate and are so grateful for all of you. And, you know, I think one thing I've learned throughout relationships and just creating and speaking and writing and all that stuff is that all the best parts of life exist in the edge of the unknown. You know, adventures you've never been on, conversations you've never had, ways you communicate that you all of a sudden change. You know, I remember the first time that I uh, looked at healing defensiveness. So if you guys aren't familiar, there's four things that the Gottmans talk about. They call them the four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No small uh, statement there. And what they are is they're four behaviors that are evident in all relationships that end in divorce. Now, these behaviors are evident in all relationships. So when you hear them and you're like, should I do that? Should I do that? That's actually okay. It's just when they're, they're in high quantity and they're on, they are actually quite normalized it's just that we need to learn how to change them and heal them so in the Gottman's research if anyone's read the book from malcolm gladwell called blink all of these things were made more commonly known and what they said was that the Gottman's could listen to 20 hours of a couple communicating and predict with over 94 percent accuracy if the couple would divorce 94 percent. but even what made it more shocking is they could listen to just three minutes and predict with over 80% accuracy if they would divorce. So these four things are criticism. So starting statements with things like you always, you never, you never. We know we always love absolutes when we're doing this stuff. Like can't think of the one time that they didn't do that. We're like, you never do that. And I find myself doing this too, you know, still. I and mean, I have to catch myself. So criticism, contempt. Contempt is things like rolling of the eyes. Rolling of the eyes is actually the most predictive behavior of divorce. And, um, and you might be like, oh, I do that sometimes, right? It's it, because what it does is it creates a hierarchy. And you might see like when a couple is communicating, you might have done it too. And your partner, you see their partner speaking and you can see them making faces like, you know, like faces of disgust. That's also contemptuous. And what it says is it's like, I'm up here and you're down here. And that's why in those relationships, it's so hard to heal that because they'll never be met. Like there's not actually an equality in it. There might be righteousness, that kind of thing. The uh, third one is defensiveness. And so that pairs really well with criticism. And the last one is um, stonewalling. And stonewalling is things like shutting down, hanging up the phone, leaving, being unavailable. Um, it, as you might think, stonewalling is more of a male behavior not to genderize, but it just because males tend to be more avoidant as well. And things like uh, criticism tend to be more in females.
again, this isn't always true. This is just sometimes true. And the healing of defensiveness is actually to reply with, I can see some truth in what you're saying. So you can imagine if you've always shut down and gotten reactive, that all of a sudden in this moment, you're like, I can see some truth in what you're saying. The first time I ever did that, uh, it felt like I was eating my own shoe. It was the worst because, you know, you're like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, um, because defensiveness is really trying to avoid the truth that your shit stinks too. You know, it's really trying because I didn't have the capacity to hold that maybe I let people down or maybe um, sometimes I felt unworthy. I didn't know how to sit in that because if I let people down, then I was responsible for their feelings and I didn't know how to hold shame. Um, the healing of criticism is to look at how we structure statements. So to say, like, in my experience, when this happens, um, the result is. And so what you're really doing is saying, in my experience, which leaves room for the person you're speaking to's experience. All of these things, by the way, are evident in workplaces too. Four horsemen exist in everything. Um, and the healing of stonewalling is hopefully to stay. You know, So if you're someone who normally shuts down and leaves, um, that's the ideal that can be really hard to do because the reason we shut down and leave is because we don't have the nervous system capacity to co-regulate. So what I mean by that is people who are more like the chaser in relationship. And if you guys know attachment styles, that's more anxious attachment. They regulate by connecting with other people. They don't know how to self-regulate, how to sit with their themselves and feelings. People who are more avoidant, who are like run from things, shut down, are more of the person we pursue. They usually match really well with anxious people, right? Um, they have a hard time regulating with another person. So you could sort of think like the edge for both people is to do the thing that they don't know how to do. And that's the edge of everything. Um, so before I, I don't, you know, I don't get too into everything. Does anyone have any questions, any thoughts, any feelings, any criticisms any any no none we're done we did it that's it Everyone's... we solved the world sweet this is great <laughs> any questions any diving deeper into any of those thoughts or processes how do you stop rolling your eyes oh yeah you gotta just poke them no you know it's the rolling of the eyes is you have to go into the feeling that's actually below them you know that's what are you really trying to say what are you really trying to say? When we roll the eyes, what we're there's probably an element of disgust that's in there too. You know, there's probably a ton of unexpressed hurt, a lot of ton of being let down, a lack of trust. You know, in the research, when there's a lot of contempt in a relationship, it's actually the hardest to resolve. And, you know, I think that's because one, you really need a skilled therapist or a skilled coach who can clear out all the bullshit that's below all of those behaviors. Because, you know, in the research, by the time a couple goes to couples therapy, generally, it's about six years. Um, but in the research, too, couples therapy doesn't tend to save marriages, even though we would think that it would, um, because it's often gone so far at that point. And, you know, we, unless you live in New York or as my friend who's Jewish says to me that he was delivered by his psychologist because it was just part of his family system. He's like, I wasn't even delivered by a ob guy. I was just delivered by my psychologist. Um, 
it's not normalized part of culture, you know, generally. And so, you know, if you didn't grow up with therapy or coaching or even the opportunity to learn about relationships, like I'm 43, there was not a single relational class that I took in school. There was nothing. I mean, I look back and I'm like, wow, the most important skills I needed to learn were the very things that were never taught, like finance, health, nutrition, and relationships. If you consider all of those things, all of those things will have the greatest um, impact on the quality of our life, relationships especially. And that research is from uh, Harvard has a study where they look at people who um, they look at now more than one generation, but they compare Harvard graduates with people from the poor areas, the poorer areas of Boston, so they could compare socioeconomic impact. And what they saw was people the greatest predictor of someone's health at age 80 was actually the quality of their relationships at age 50. And it didn't have to be romantic. It's just relationships of all kinds. So, you know, there's an idea that being married is protective or being in a relationship doesn't have to be married is protective from a health perspective. It's really, you know, when you consider what it is, is when I need something, will someone be there? I mean, that's ultimately one of the greatest predictive uh, questions of our mental health is, do you have someone to call at 2 a.m. if you need someone? And, you know, I I think of doing men's work and how many men, how few men have that answer. And I'm not saying that's only true for men. I think that's true of a lot of pe people these days, you know, especially with lockdowns and all the things that have occurred in the last couple of years. We are a social species. So you think of the cost of those things and I'm sure it's a controversial subject, uh, but I, since the beginning, have believed that the impact of those uh, was going to be far greater than the protective nature of them. When you're on the go 24-7 like me, guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me. From working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials, it's been my go-to for so many years. And having everything in one place is such a time saver for me. With being a first-time mom, for a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between, but it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're going to love it. Um, I just see a question. Could the researchers also tell with the same level of certainty what couples would stay happily together? What a great question, Joe. Um, or it's not Joe. You just have Joe on your name, but Anne. you're the one with the Anne. Okay, Anne. Um, yes. So in that research, it's from um, the Gottmans too. They're kind of like the godparents of the godfather of uh, relational research. And they have a lab called the Love Lab, which is out of Seattle. And it overlooks Lake Washington, this uh, area that they created. You could check out, they have a um, great podcast called. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called, but it's pretty obvious if you look up Gottman's podcast and it has like little espresso shots of relational tips. And 
one thing that they looked at was couples that were newly married and they put them in these, they're like, Oh, it's you're newly married. Let's put you in this apartment overlooking Lake Washington and we'll record all your conversations. And what they saw in a six year follow-up was that the couples who had above a five to one ratio of positive to negative interactions. So positive interactions being just bids, which are invitations to connect. So a bid that my parents often do is my dad will be reading the paper or now he'll be reading his iPad, it's transition. And he'll be like, huh. And my mom will be like, oh, what are you reading, Jerry? And that's a bid, that's actually as simple as a bid. And in the couples that stayed married um, and thrived, stayed married was five to one, thrived seven to eight to one. And you know when people are too positive, you know, like 13 to one, where it's just bullshit anyways, right? It doesn't, it's not grounded, it's not authentic. Um, that was not predictive. <laughs> that That's where it starts to take a big drop because who wants to be around people who don't tell you the truth? So, you know, there is some relative nature to, to groundedness and reality. You know, if my partner always told me I was being a great partner, I know something was fucking up, you know? Um, and so what they saw was that the couples who, who were successful, I want to say the couples who broke up only turned towards about 30% of the bids. I used to know the number of the ones who succeeded. I believe it's above 80%. And that shows you how just how much matters those micro moments, those things that we think, you know, we think it's the anniversaries or the birthdays or the Christmas or the whatever, but it's actually the little moments, these little connective moments. And often we don't turn to them um, when there's actually something else going on. You know, it's like a lot of the times I'll get questions about intimacy and like, we're not having sex or they don't initiate or this, this, and this. And really intimacy, when it's not occurring, it can be life circumstances, right? Like someone could have passed away in the family. There could be stresses. There's that. And so life impacts that also unspoken things between us impact that, you know, and, I think some of the research on sex is so fascinating because a lot of the thoughts is that, um, well, one, there's this built-in narrative that uh, men get bored of monogamy faster and it's just natural for men to, you know, want to spread their seed, biology, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's, a, that's a really uh, convenient narrative. Uh, and it's not actually true. In the research that has looked at perspectives on monogamy, for example, women actually get bored of it faster. So that kind of contradicts again. Again, research is just snapshots. So I never want to say like, this is how it always is. So always take it with a grain of salt because you might be like, that's not true for me or that's, that's okay. Um, but in the work from uh, Emily Nagoski, she has a book called Come As You Are. And it's a really incredible book. It's so fascinating. And she talks about um, spontaneous desire versus responsive desire. Women tend to have more responsive desire and men tend to have more spontaneous desire. Um, and if you identify as either one of those things and you feel like it's different, that's okay, right? Because we can all be different. Um, the spontaneous desire is like, I want to have sex. Like, I feel it, let's do it. And responsive desire, and it's pretty funny when you look at the graph. So where they first thought that desire was created is it was two male researchers 
and so it was based off the male idea of how attraction worked and how desire worked. And so, you know, it was this idea that you want sex and then you have sex and then you climb, you know, climax and then you come down and, you know, that's obviously not built around a female model. And then what was fascinating is when you looked at the model, I forget the researchers looked at it, but the book is fantastic. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but in it, the model is like, there's all these different inputs that go into responsive desire. Like, you know, if we're speaking heteronormatively, it's like he cleaned the house. Oh, no, I might be. He started rubbing my feet. OK, like we might be there. We started kissing and now I want to, you know, so it it just shows that there's all these other things that go into it. Um, and so those inputs are all really important to consider. And she talks about how there's things that hit our gas pedal that make us want something more. And there's things that hit our brakes. And so we need to know what are the things that hit the gas pedal and what are the things that hit the brakes? Cause you have more things on the brake than you're not going to want to, or desire intimacy as much. If there's not as much trust, if there's a breaking of word, if there's not consistency, all those things are going to impact desire and intimacy. Um, one of the things that I find really fascinating in the research, I'm actually interviewing a researcher from UPenn next week on this. I listened to this really great podcast where she was being interviewed and it was on the Atlantic article that she wrote was called um, the evolutionary benefit of victimhood. Uh. And in it, she talks about how if there are two GoFundMe's, and one has stories of more trauma, they'll actually get more resources than the one who doesn't have that in their stories. And that when someone claims virtuosity or victimhood, they are seen as sort of higher status, like if you, whatever gets more resources. So there's like an, her, she discussed it in more complexity, but this idea that there are resources and rewards for claiming these things, especially in a society that now makes excuse me, makes these things go viral. And I thought it's a really interesting subject, obviously complex and filled with lots of different intersections and conversations. Um, but I think a lot about like, what is the benefit relationally or just personal growth wise? You know, you're all in this group. So clearly you're curious about personal growth and expansion and the self. That's a, you know, I'd love to, if that was all of the population of humanity, but unfortunately it's not. And, you know, it's when we do personal growth, I'll often hear people say like, I feel like the dating pool is getting smaller. And it's like, yeah, that's actually the whole point. You know, it should get smaller because that actually shows that what you desire out of relationship is changing. What you'll settle for in relationship is changing. It's actually a sign of the work working. Um, but I think in the context of conversation, when we're, ourselves in a space of victimhood. And I think the challenge with this is that often we think that if we step out of being a victim, we it negates the experience of being a victim or it like cancels that. And um, it doesn't, right? It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. It can be a both and. And this is the complexity of being a person is that we need to constantly live in this space of both and. You know, that I'm both anxious about dating and excited, that I'm both sad right now and happy. You know, I know when I talk to someone who's getting married and they're like, I'm scared and excited. And there's often this idea that being scared is actually the thing we should be focused on, as opposed to allowing ourselves this 
large amount of complexity. You know, in the language that we use about emotion, we code emotion culturally, societally, as either positive or negative. You know, we say, like, if you're happy, that's good. If you have joy, if you have excitement, if you have arousal, all these things are good. If you're sad or you have grief or you have anger, these are coded as less desirable. But even in doing that, we've created a hierarchy of how emotion should be experienced and how it's lived within us. Well, you know, in the research and the work from uh, Hilary Jacobs Hendel, who wrote a book called "It's Not Always Why It's Not Always Depression," she I interviewed her on my podcast too. She's brilliant, and what I love about her journey to wanting to understand feelings is that she herself didn't trust emotion. Like she's like, eh, emotions aren't rational screw that. Like I can't, I can't pay attention to those. And it was when she was going through a divorce that she experienced what she was coding as depression. She's like, wait, like, I think I might actually be depressed. And so she started to study emotion. And what she saw was that really are, she calls them core emotions. So we have six core emotions and I believe it's um, grief, joy, anger, uh, sexual excitement, disgust, and one other one. I can't remember. Anyways, she says that when we suppress one or any of those, we, when we suppress one or many of those things, it starts to present as anxiety or guilt and then eventually moves to depression. Anxiety, shame, and guilt. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's Frizi Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. And... I think so much of the work that we have to undo, especially depending on how you were raised and the messages you've been sent. I see there's lots of women on here. I see there's a few men. Um, 
the messages are complex that we've been sent. Like women can be too emotional. You're not allowed to experience anger. Men are allowed to express some aggression and some joy, but they can't show any weakness, any sadness, because that's considered weakness. And so in the exploration of what we've been taught about feelings, what I've really found is that when you use language like I'm sad or I'm angry, you can't then be something else, right? Like by saying I am, you have to become it. And this is why language is so important. But if you say I feel, now there's space between you and the feeling. And if you even add another one, a part of me feels, then you now have even more distance. Not literal distance from the emotion, but what you've done is psychologically, you've allowed yourself to become the observer of your feeling rather than your actual feeling. This is so important. It's so important because as I said, like that's where you could say a part of me feels sad right now and a part of me feels angry. Those often go together. And there's a statement that anger is sad's bodyguard. Um, and there's also some thought that anger is a secondary emotion. I actually don't agree. I, I personally think that anger is one of the most transformative, one of the most important emotions. Like what really lays the first boundary sometimes is anger. What changes the way we relate? It's anger. Look at things like the Me Too movement, anger. Like these are all really important emotions because they allow us to transform our lives. Emotion itself is information. And if you think the word emotion to evoke motion. So when someone's going through depression or sadness or any of those things or anxiety, if it's anxiety, I always ask what core emotions do you believe you're blocking? And if it's sadness, it's like, what about your life is actually informing you that sadness is an appropriate feeling? And then what would you need to change? Like, what's it inviting you to change? What are all your feelings inviting you to shift? And then you realize, you know, so much of what I see in people trying to understand their feelings or themselves is there's first this thought of what is wrong with me that I feel these feelings, especially in the circumstances where someone has what we might call a good life. And they go, people go, well, you should just be grateful. And you're like, but I don't but I don't experience that. And they're like, well, you just need to wake up every day and do a gratitude journal, and then you'll experience gratefulness. But if I'm telling you to do that, I'm also, first off, I'm totally denying your actual experience, you know, which might not be gratitude. Like you might, I don't have to wake up and be in your shoes every day. Perhaps your relationship isn't satisfying. Perhaps you don't like your job, you know, and by being able to recognize that, that like you have permission to feel whatever you feel. And instead of looking for the problem in you that's creating the feeling, what happens if there's not a problem with you, but actually something right with you and you're actually incredibly wise. And there's actually some information that's being delivered to you that someone taught you a long time ago that you couldn't honor yourself and your own feelings and you couldn't trust your own feelings. And so what we do is we begin to subcontract or contract out authority over our life to other people. We go to other people and say, what do you think I should do? Well, most of the time when I talk to someone, when they say, what do you think I should do? First off, I'm never going to tell them unless it's like, really, you know, you're like, come on, the signs there. You want a sign from the universe. There's a literal sign that says, don't do this anymore. You know, it's like the, I think of Carolyn Mace where she says, we ask for a sign from God and then we get one and we don't like it. So we would pretend we didn't see it. 
And, you know, I think about that often because I'm one of those people that, you know, my, I might get called stubborn sometimes. Yeah. And so that doesn't really work well with change, right? Because it's like, I have a feeling. And then, you know, I thought about this recently. I kept getting these signs of like, hey, you need to shift a bit. You need to change this. You need to do this other work. You need to talk about this other thing. And I'm like, yay, no, I'm just going to wait up. And I remember just having this awareness one day when it got so heavy, when I started to feel it in my body, I started to feel just my body felt tired. I felt uninspired uh, by my work. I felt so different. And I remember just thinking like, at what point did I stop believing in miracles? Like, at what point did I stop seeing that? Like, if you follow the hints, life carries you. That continues to be the, a truth that I know, but I don't always live. And as soon as I get back on track, I'm like, wow. Like, I remember when I first wanted to talk about relationships. I'd gone through an engagement that ended. I'd um, started to study relationships. I had previously studied them as a sales rep in pharmaceuticals, actually. And I wanted to study how do you manipulate behavior, essentially. That's what we do in sales, right? And I thought, why am I so good at talking about everything but my feelings? Like, that doesn't make sense. It's not a skill set issue. There's something else going on. Why did I get engaged when I didn't want to? That makes no sense. Why the f hell would we do that? And I was like, I spent all this money on something I didn't want to do. What is I think then back to like my university, I did an undergraduate degree in finance. I didn't like finance. What the hell was I doing? It was because I thought you could get a good job doing finance and then become a good provider. And then I'd be seen as a viable partner and someone would find me attractive and choose me. Well, that means I'm living my whole life for the applause of other people to fit in a role I was taught to fit in. And think about that for your life. Think about like, what ways do you dance for the applause of other people? What ways do you show up for other people? You know, I was thinking recently, a lot of people don't like a lot of the things I say, you know, and that's okay. Because the point isn't for people to like it. The point is for me to like myself. The point is for me to be open to feedback. The point is for me to take feedback from people I trust but it's not to be liked. You know, if I pick, I remember I had a trainer when I worked at a place called Future Shop, which if you're Canadian, you'll know what that is. Um, but it was like Best Buy, but like Best Buy, but like the 40 year old virgin, you know, it was like, we wore suits, we sold extended warranties. It was total cheddar. And like, I learned, you would be like, Hey, this product is really amazing. And you'd be like, but you'll probably want this five year extended warranty on this product. I just convinced you it's awesome. Anyways, in it, I remember I had this trainer who said to me that it's more important to be respected than to be liked. And I was like, that's such bullshit. Like, why not? Why not get both? And I remember when I first started writing about relationships, my sister said to me, you'll know you're doing really good work when like a third of people don't like you, a third are neutral and a third like you. And I remember the codependent part of me being like, can we just be like maybe 5% don't like, and like they're more quiet. Like maybe they're the 5% that just silently give feedback or I can filter them in the other inbox or in the spam. Um, but you realize as soon as you're sharing your voice and your whole life will depend on this. Are you willing to speak your truth at the cost of relationships? And this is biologically programmed in you. And that's why it's one of the hardest things to do. It also has a template that if you look back up your 
matrilineal or or father the line of your father to the patrilineal line and you look back and you go who spoke their truth and what was the cost of doing it and you'll often see the cost was immense the cost was maybe violence the cost was maybe death the cost was and so you know I, I, that movie the social dilemma they talk about how we are not designed to hold the opinions of 10,000 people. Like when you post a video about a thought you have and all of a sudden it goes viral and then all of a sudden you have people losing their shit about whatever you might have said, but you know it was so real for you. And I think what's so fascinating about algorithms and social media is that truth really is the ultimate algorithm. You know, like when someone shares something that's really true for them, there's a resonance to it in our own bodies, our own experience where we're like, yeah, it happens in music too. Like I think about it even in the context of books. Have you, has anyone here ever read Women Who Run With Wolves? As a first time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. <laughs> you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, they keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. If you haven't read it, I'm a man and it's like the Bible of women in my experience. And that's like true of any women I know who've read it. There's a book called Iron John that is considered sort of a similar thing for men. It's incredible. I'm actually doing it in a men's group right now. Um, but every time I read, if you if we get off this call and you literally just Google quotes from women who run with wolves, there's an encoding that it is written in, in a way that moves your body that very few words have ever moved my body. And there's a thought that you don't have to understand a book to get its message, that you'll actually get from it the vibration that it's written in and i think that's so true there are books that have completely changed my life that like man's search for meaning by victor frankel was the first book i ever read that was not a book about sales or a book from school the book is called women who run with wolves and for men which i think that's actually an incredible book for men to read too it's called iron john iron john's an, a really great book too um but I think about like the, what was I just saying about? Men who search for meaning and the vibe. Yeah. When I ended my engagement at 27, that was, I remember asking people who I really admired, like the way they live their life. I was like, what is the book that changed your life? And that was the book I would get as an answer almost every time. And I read it and it was the first time that I ever thought about being on this planet for a reason other than to just be a human who is a provider, who gets a house and has a car and a kid. I never thought about my purpose. 
And I think we're so disconnected from that so often because we have to in order to survive. Much like I said, you know, when you speak your truth and at the cost of that is relationship, the idea is that if I say this, I'll lose the relationship. But the exchange you're actually making is you lose yourself, right? Like if I avoid conflict outside of me, I internalize conflict. And if I have to keep a relationship by silencing the truth, then the relationship only costs is, is only dependent on me not causing any friction. But the very thing that expands all of us and grows all of us is friction. Like, think about that. You know, like the very thing that changes your life is when someone says, hey, I noticed this, or you experienced such a challenge that you know you need to change. And I think it's Tony Robbins who says we change for two reasons. One, it hurts so much we have to, or two, we learn so much we have to. And I think really we learn so much that it creates so much dissonance that it hurts that you know. You know, and I remember I made this rule. The first rule I ever made after I got in, my engagement ended was that I would have every conversation I didn't want to have. Because I got to that point and I thought, how did I get here? Why did I do all these things? And the first answer was I avoided every hard conversation. So I was like, fuck that. I'm going to have every hard conversation then. Because I realized how much of a prisoner I felt in my own life. I was like, when was the last time I really felt connected to myself? It was like six, seven years before that. So I've been living seven years of like a normal life and I've been doing the things and, you know, going out and drinking and being in a relationship for five of those years. And it was just normal. But like if normal is silence or normal is settling or normal is complacency or normal is not doing what you love, then when you look around you, you're like, well, I'm just, that's what Tom does. I mean, like Cynthia, she does that too. Like, I don't want to be the outlier because it's uncomfortable to be the outlier. Think of the first time someone gets sober in a group of friends. It's always uncomfortable. The group of friends is like, well, shit, do I have a problem? You know, and it's not always true that the group of friends has a problem, but often our fear of someone else's sobriety is just a fear of us not making a decision of us avoiding truths. We don't want to pay attention to. And obviously that's not always true, but it's often true. And so, you know, when, yeah, Gabor Mate talks about how humans have two needs. We have the need for self-expression and we have the need for belonging. And when self-expression threatens belonging, belonging usually wins. And so you think about what we are programmed and tribally taught is to, to emulate and mimic the values of the tribe and the views of the tribe. And, you know, I think before the internet, that was something that we definitely had to do before even you could move around before planes existed, you know, like if you watch shows like 1883 or played Oregon trail, you know, that to go from one end of the country to others was not some crackerjack thing. You couldn't just hop on a plane. You ended, I think, I forget which stand-up comedian talks about it, but he says like, you often ended up at the other place with totally different people, you know, because it was hard to survive. And you know, now we have the internet and we're like, oh, you can meet someone who lives in a different place. You can find your community and the views, which I think is both a blessing and a curse because of course you can create an echo chamber of views that you're only around people who think the way you think, which is not helpful for anybody. Um, but at the same time, you also can find affirmation that you're not crazy, right? That like, 
I remember the first time I went to a personal growth conference, I was like, I'd only been to pharmaceutical sales conferences. Let me tell you, those are like, they're like kind of like a party. They're like a, like there's a lot of rah-rah, like there's loud music playing and there's like open bar and, you know, we're all kind of under the programming of the pharmaceutical company. And we're all like, this is the best industry ever. Everyone else just questions it, but they don't see we're trying to help everybody. I mean, the illusions were really real, but I was 22 and naive and it was a great job, you know, and, and then I went to a personal growth conference and I was like, wait, other people want to learn about themselves. Like, this is insane. I didn't even know this existed. And when I started to study romantic relationships, I really thought like, why doesn't, why isn't this taught everywhere? Like, why isn't this taught everywhere? And what I've learned that is the exact same parallel as my own growth within relationship is that as I continue to learn about myself, I used to think that it was, you know, every time I learned something, it was like peeling a layer of an onion, you know? And then I'm like, well, when the hell am I going to get to the core? Like, fuck, like, you know, you peel the layer and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, I got more shit. And I remember saying this to my friend, Sherry Salata. She used to be the producer of Oprah. And I remember telling her this and she said to me, well, Mark, maybe you should look at it that every time you understand a new level, you actually take up more space. You actually grow, you actually expand that you're not trying to get to a core, but you're actually trying to become more, more light. And I thought, Oh, that's a, well, that's a mind fuck of a helpful transition. You know, it was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. What a thought. And, you know, I think relationally the same thing has been true. Like the same fear that I've had about speaking my truth in relationship, how I feel that I have the right to my feelings um, and not trying to people please that also leaked or, or was part of speaking online or like sharing my truth in my work. You know, I found that I went from wanting to heal individual codependency to starting to want to heal collective codependency. And where you think of like the the internet is really the decentralization of knowledge, right? And it's like where we wouldn't have had, I, I met this woman who is from, um, I want to say she was from Saudi Arabia. And she, I met her on the beach in Vancouver and she had been relocated to Vancouver secretly and a whole story about that. But she said she used to be online on Facebook and she would vehemently defend her relationship or her relationship to religion. She'd like anyone who criticized her religion, she would attack. And she said, but then she started to see cracks in her, in her arguments. And in the relationship she was in, in her family, the women were not allowed to have cell phones. They weren't allowed freedom. They weren't if, and you know, I have a friend who has a divorce podcast in Saudi Arabia and she's, she told me that when she got divorced, her father then decides whether she can travel outside of the country. And he would just give, he, you know, he wasn't controlling. He would give blanket approval, which is so crazy to even think about. And when her son became 18, he would then have the choice over whether his mother could fly. And so I'm speaking to this woman and I was just thinking, like, how crazy is it what the Internet has done to sort of shatter the paradigms of what we think is possible? And this is why we should always be around people who who are what we want to become, who like are already living it, you know, because 
Lacey Phillips, she has a program called To Be Magnetic. And she talks about these people being expanders, that they're people that like you might not know how to create what they create, but you'll learn how just by observing them, just by listening to their language, just by seeing their speech patterns, their behavioral patterns, the way they move their hands, right? The choices they make in their life. And so if the internet is the decentralization of knowledge, we know that Bitcoin and those things are the decentralization of currency, right? Of banks. And I really think we're in this state, we're in the decentralization of self. Like you get to choose on some level, like what beliefs do you want to hold and what relationships do you want to have and how do you want to be separate of what you inherited and what you were taught? We're in a very special time because you think about that. We didn't really, and, and I would say this is still very privileged within certain parts of the world too, that we can look at the life we're creating and say, okay, how do I learn how to do this thing that I love? And how do I monetize that? Or how do I just do it, right? Or like, I want this type of relationship and I want it to feel like this. How do I create that? What skill set would I need? And you can go learn it. Like, that's crazy. You could go on YouTube right now and literally learn how to communicate at an exceptional level for free. You could buy books and learn from masters. You can learn all of this stuff and you can completely change your life. And so when we stay stuck in patterns, we have to look for the resources to get out of them. They're available. I mean, why we buy courses is because we don't want to go find all the things everywhere. It's like, yo, just give me all the steps and I'll just do it for 30 days and then my life will change. And that's really true. You know, that is true. You know, it's not like, I don't think we always need to know the pathology of where something comes from. But it's helpful because it re removes or reduces the blame we have on ourselves for it. But you don't have to know why a behavior exists to know you want to change it. And often we'll spend our lives trying to pathologize it, trying to figure it out. Why do I do that? Why do I do that? Again, I think it's helpful because it removes the shame or the blame or, or minimizes it. But really, it can also be a delay tactic to transformation. Just like we can become obsessed with learning to grow and never actually changing. I can become obsessed with wanting to learn about something, but never actually living it fully. You know, I think when a lot of us go into roles of service, like healthcare practitioners, psychotherapists, nurses, doctors, coaches, physiotherapists, hygienists, dentists, right? Like podcast hosts, it doesn't really matter. It's like, Often we're, we're also uh, operationalizing or monetizing our codependency, like the desire to help, help, and help, but sometimes not looking at our own shit. You know, it's like codependency, I see, sorry, I, I'm just seeing this question now. How would I define codependency? I would define codependency as the need to be needed in relationships. And not that you shouldn't want to be desired or wanted in your relationship. I think that's often the confusion of it. But it's like, I need to be able to be helping or fixing or changing this other person. And so I'm constantly reading the books and over-functioning and 
getting in the car and playing a podcast like oh my god how did this end up on we should listen to this you know like live oh this book ended up under your pillow maybe you should read it the universe is giving you a sign um we often are in this obsession with trying to help and save other people which usually comes from our childhood and the role we took in our family um and then the other person in that relational construct has the identity that generally they're a problem or something's broken in them or something's wrong with them in the work from harriet lerner she would call one the overfunctioner and the other one an underfunctioner um there's two really short books from harriet lerner one's called dance of intimacy and the other one's called dance of anger they're both written for women um but they are incredible and i read both of them and they were completely transformative for me too i interviewed her on the podcast she's really incredible um i think dance of anger for women especially is just like it's just so good because it basically talks about what i said which is when you change a pattern or put in a boundary or express anger or do all those things the people you're in relationship will be like what is happening here you're changing what you normally do and so she calls it a change back move. So the other person will be like, oh, you want to try that? Okay, well, watch this, checkmate. And they'll try something to get us to go back to our old pattern. And where most of us live our lives, and this is totally normal and adaptive, trying to accommodate or stay in what's familiar, right? And we're like adapting to what's happening to us. So you can think about it like we're reacting to the world it is a completely different way to live to have the world respond to you like to stand in your power and your ferocity and your communication in yourself and allow other people to begin to oscillate around you now obviously this can go too far and you can become <laughs> narcissistic so like you know we're 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 negotiating and relating to the world but no longer are we shrinking and accommodating the world so there's an energy shift that occurs. And look like everyone in relationship needs you in your power. You being powerless to be in relationship or being overtly oppressive and powerful in a way that's unhealthy um, is not useful in any way because both require a power dynamic. You know, it's like when someone says, well, you can't do that because that gives away your power in the dating process. I'm like, well, you're already losing thinking about power. Like, how would you be if you weren't even thinking about power? How would you be if you weren't thinking about keeping them or losing them? And then be that. You know, and uh, I think there's an important line to remember, too, of like, what's the line in relationship where we overshare versus be vulnerable? And I think that line is distinguishable by Brene Brown talks about how don't share with people things that they haven't earned the right to. So you ask yourself, have they earned the right to my story? The other thing that I think is a real powerful differentiator between those energetically is when you're sharing from a place of a healed space that's not oversharing. Oversharing tends to have the energy that I'm going to share this and I'm too much and this is just going to validate it. I'm going to share the trauma that I went through on the first date and I'm going to share it right now. And then I'm going to see if they still love me or want to stick around because this is just who I am. So like, like it or not. But what happens is it gets reaffirmed because they we're actually violating a relational boundary because they haven't earned the right to the story and we shouldn't give it to them yet. 
And so the way I like to think about it is if you're going to share something about what you've been through, because that's important, is share what you've learned. If you share what you've learned from an experience, then what you're teaching, you're teaching, you're showing your expansion. It's like if you're on a date with someone, you say, what did you learn from your last breakup? That's very different than when they're like, oh, and then she did this or he did that. And, you know, like we still don't talk today. And you're like, okay, we're probably not going to go on another date. I, you know, because if someone hasn't healed their stuff with their past, which that could be you, that's okay. But at the same time, it's like we keep bringing it with us, you know, where we still have resentment, where we still have hurt. Those are places that we need to explore. So I want to be mindful of time because I've just gone on like a total long rant about bitcoin and other things and so does anyone have any questions or any thoughts or any feelings or mark i want to go back to tara had a question earlier about she said i've spent the last 39 years caring too much what others think tara first of all you are not alone i think we all do that um she said it's been the hardest thing to try and break any magic tricks yeah well first off um what a perfect time to be aware of that you know uh, I think often we think like, well, if I had only learned this shit 10 years ago, you would have never listened. It was available. You know, like I think Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer, they were all saying the same shit. You know, it's like you're ready for the message when you're ready for the message. You know, there's that saying that uh, when the student shows up, the teacher arrives. And, you know, so I think the first part is having compassion for where it comes from. You care about what other people think because that's a survival strategy. And that was important. That actually really maintained connection and probably your family maintained safety for you psychologically and relationally, um, or at least mitigated it, tried to protect you as much as possible. So where it comes from, we have to be compassionate for it because it's so, I think about it. It's like, it's, it's not, it's not stupid or bad or this, it's actually perfect because it, think about how brilliant the system is that your system came up with this strategy unconsciously based on brilliant human wisdom to maintain safety or try to. So the first part is I always say, just have compassion for where it comes from because it's brilliant. The second part is the adult gets to choose. The child stays in that. And part of adulting or what someone might call an initiatory process, which is really moving from adolescence to adulthood, um, is processes where we look and we say, okay, it is the hardest thing to break. I totally get that because it's familiar. You know, I think there's that quote from Marianne Williamson where she talks about how, who are we to, um, it's like one of the most powerful quotes. I wish I could quote it properly, but it's like, who are you not to be magnificent? Who are you not to be powerful? right? Like we don't realize how important that actually is. I think at the end of the day, what we're always asking ourselves relationally is, do I have my own back? Like push comes to shove. Am I going to be here for me? And when you share a boundary for the first time, or even say something, even though you care about what someone thinks, because it's not like caring about what people think goes anywhere. Right. It's like you share a boundary and you're like zero fucks. You're like trying to channel your inner Lizzo or uh, whatever her name is, um, you might want to listen to music like that because it does like my hair toss, get my nails done. That song's got a vibe to it, right? You listen to that, and then you have a good friend beside you when you lay a boundary and you lay it and you recognize 
that guilt is a total normal emotion for people who have never laid boundaries because guilt was often weaponized against people when um, they wanted to prioritize themselves. So any prioritization of self can feel totally foreign. That's good. Second is guilt. You can learn to increase your capacity for guilt. You're just not letting guilt choose for you. Um, having a best friend beside you is great because when you're in that moment, you're like, I'm going to fold and they're like, fuck that. No, you're not. We're going to play Lizzo and we're going to kick ass. And, and that's just important to have around you. The other side of it is that I just want to reiterate that caring about what people think doesn't change what you do with it does. You just don't let it choose for you. Care about what you think, care about how you feel, prioritize that. That's going to feel selfish. It's going to feel selfish. It's not at all selfish. It's actually important. It's kind of like when you listen to that classic Jeezy personal growth line where they say, when you get on the airplane, what do they say? Put the oxygen on yourself first and then help other people because without the oxygen, you're of no use to anyone else. It's cheesy, but it's so damn true, right? So the other side of it is that compensatory strategies or adaptive behaviors like people-pleasing when you channel them and hone them, they are superpowers. Because people who tend to be people pleasers or anxiously attached are highly attuned. Like I'm talking on such an unconscious level, they pick up on the most subtle tone changes and facial changes. They call them micromotor, micromotor movements. There are things that a regular person who doesn't have that adaptive strategy actually doesn't pick up or notice, but they're hypervigilant. So anything that is our adaptive strategy when harnessed can be our superpower. And so we can begin, you know, you might sense other people's feelings. You might be highly intuitive about when something feels off for people. These are all skills that when they're harnessed can be so helpful to humanity. Also teaching other people how to do it is really incredible. So I hope that's helpful. Do you have time for a couple more, Mark? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Teresa, I see your hand. Thank you so much. Um, Mark, it's really a pleasure having you tonight. I'm really learning a lot. Um, when you talked before about uh, truth and authenticity, do you think that's changing over the past couple of years with everything that's gone on? Do you think people are looking more at values and looking more not only at what they do as far as um, relationships, jobs, but do you think people are becoming more authentic? How do you see that? I think we have two, I say this with tenderness because there's so much complexity, right? It's like, I can't be binary because there's so much gray. Uh, but I would say that there are people who are waking up to that. And I'd say that there are other people doubling down on it. On Like when I think about how cancel culture exists and the sort of psychological process that occurs with that is that it occurs to me again i might be totally wrong it occurs to me that our society in some level is being structured around producing the least amount of reactivity and and think about like if you were to share something that's true for you today and it offends someone else you can get canceled like literally your job can get lost. And again, I, I'm all for accountability culture. 
I just think like we've taken such small things that people can get canceled for or something can be misinterpreted and it can be completely weaponized against someone. So I think that it's a both end. I think that we have never had more people stepping into their power and their authenticity. And I think that also threatens people who have really ensured that people be compliant and silent. You know, you think about like, what is the cost of people waking up to entrepreneurship or employing themselves or pursuing their passions, their dreams, employing other people? Is it really removes you from being an employee for a giant corporation? As people wake up to the impact that choices or relational patterns have on themselves, they you can't wake up to painful patterns within yourself and not see painful patterns everywhere. Like you can't restore your relationship to yourself and not want to restore your relationship to the earth. Like those two can't exist apart from one another. So, I mean, I do agree. I think that people are stepping more and more into their power. And I also think it's coming at the perception of more threat to that, if that makes sense. It does. I, I thank you so much for that because I know, um, I think a lot of people get torn between that and um, I work in the healthcare profession, so I know exactly what you're talking about with certain things. So it is kind of a fine line. I do agree with that, but thank you for all the clarification. I appreciate it. Well, I think what's so fascinating about the healthcare space, but just space in general is we've removed discourse. Like no longer is discussion encouraged generally like, I don't remember the last time in the last two years that I've seen a panel of experts discuss policies rather than them just be laid out. And I worked in that area for 14 years and I have lots of friends who work in healthcare. And I'm just like, wow, what happened? Um, but I feel like it's returning. You know, I feel like some of that is coming back now, um, which I'm hopeful for. I mean, I'm from Canada and Canada has been pretty wild the last couple of years. I'm sure if there's any Australians or New Zealanders on here, they probably feel the same. Mark, one last one I see from Helen. If we are invested in our own authenticity and prioritizing ourselves, how can we ever be in long-term relationships as partners will be doing the same? How can relationships survive without accommodating each other's needs and truths? Well, imagine if the relationship is actually created based on the idea that it empowers each self. And that's not threatening to the connection, but actually contributes to the connection, right? Like. Imagine if for me, like this is true for me, the more empowered my partner is and the more truth she tells me, the more liberated the relationship itself is. And it actually celebrates her telling me the truth rather than protecting me from a truth that I can't hold or can't hear. In doing that, not only is she staying imprisoned in for the connection, but the connection itself requires it. That's actually codependency, right? So whenever we start to point at things that are true, in systems that have never done that, the system will want to keep us the same, right? Like you think about a family system where there's an alcoholic and people haven't talked about it. The system generally accommodates the addict or the alcoholic. Each person in the family tends to take on a role in order to facilitate or enable the addiction. When one person goes, that's bullshit. Like that person's an alcoholic or dad, you have an anger issue or mom, you have this. All of a sudden, the system is like, oh, fuck, like, shit, we're all turning towards this thing that we said we'd never turn towards. This is our unconscious agreement. And now the system is in, is invited to shatter the way it 
really existed before, but everyone's free, right? Like think about the healing of any addiction. The healing of any person who is addicted, who is in relationship with us, is having a consequence, right? It's saying, you these behaviors impact me in this way. Like anyone watched that show Intervention back in the day? I don't know, it might still exist. But you'd watch them and they'd be like, hey, if you don't change this, here's the consequence. And the person would, that was the, the ideal path to sobriety in those cases. That is true of everything that is a dysfunctional or unhealthy behavior. So there's a quote from Glennon Doyle's book. Uh, what's her Untamed. latest book? Yes. And in it, she says, I think it's um, Elizabeth Gilbert or get her wife saying to her, there's no such thing as one liberate one way liberation. Mm. If you leave a relationship because it's no longer for you, it's actually no longer for them. And so I think about this in the context of relating. When you tell the truth and you say, I'm taking my mask off. And we do that in the family. We do that in communication. We do that in codependent friendships in order for codependency to be healed. One person steps into their power and the other one steps out of their brokenness. It's like when one person heals their addiction, the other person's like, what am I going to do now? Like my whole life has been spent trying to get you sober and now you're sober. And I'm like, I got no job. Like now I got to look at my own need to get you sober. Like what was that addiction? And so when one person takes their mask off, they're saying, I love and trust this relationship enough for me to be honest and real. If the relationship can't hold it, it's either invited to hold it and expand or break. But either way, both people are free. So if the relationship agreements are this relationship is a place where we celebrate truth and it's a place where we celebrate honesty and we celebrate your growth and my growth, because if I need you to stay the same in order for me to be comfortable, then I'll spend my life trying to control you and shit on your dreams because I'll be afraid that if you grow, you'll grow away from me. That's not love. That's control. That's not love. And so if the truth accommodating needs, like a lot of, there's this differentiation between compromise and self-abandonment, right? And I think the difference is because there's no doubt that if I'm in a relationship with someone and they're like, I want to go take this job in Cincinnati. And I'm like, Cincinnati, fuck. And I'm like, but I want to go do this. And there might be a negotiation. Like we'll go to Cincinnati for a couple of years. We'll see how that is and blah, blah. I might be disappointed, but I know that it serves the expansion of the relationship to go to Cincinnati. Self-abandonment is, I in no way feel expanded by this experience. I actually feel like I've lost myself. And this is a line we have to learn. I can't tell someone what self-abandonment is versus expansion or compromise, but compromise in and of itself, we know serves the sacred relationship. It serves the relationship that we consider sacred. Um, Self-abandonment doesn't serve either because if you're abandoning to be in a relationship, you're not serving the relationship. You're actually doing a disservice to the relationship and you're treating it as not sacred. And, you know, I think when we return to this sort of reverence for connection and love that is based on that, which actually requires us to heal codependency and requires us to heal our patterns, because really what love says 
is that I'm going to work on my stuff for this connection and for me and for you. Like, that's why I think love is so important because it might just matter to us enough that we'll change and face our stuff. There's very few other things that will get us to do that. But there is something about being in the company of other people and being in relationship and being in love and being in friendships where we can just be ourselves. There's something about those shared connections that is nourishing in a way that, I mean, it can't even be explained. And that's what we need to be in service to, you know, with ourselves too. Like if you build a sacred relationship with you, you will not tolerate anything less. So when you get gaslit, you'll be like, this doesn't hang with me. When someone flakes on you, you're like, I don't flake on me. Like this isn't a familiar behavior. When someone treats you with disrespect, you're like, disrespect doesn't live here. Because I've paid attention to my own inner voice that's disrespectful. And you start to realize that that template that you set for you sets the template for everything. And that's why inner work and self-work is informed by our relationship with other people. But it always comes back to what we do with us, how we eat, what our rituals are, how our mind works. And this is taking full accountability for it. You know, like I said, I went through a phase where I'm like, wow, like how did I get here? When did I stop believing in miracles? When did I stop believing in being attuned to my inner guidance? And so sometimes you get off course, but it's when the information comes, will you listen? And if you don't, I mean, you'll likely get sick. You know, that's the truth of it. You'll get sick, you'll get depressed, you'll get all the things. And of course the habits that accompany that are like for eating, partying, hooking up, you know, all the things that numb us from the awareness of our misalignment. And I'm saying, listen, just pay attention to the misalignment. There's nothing wrong with you. You're wise. And, you know, eat that, eat that uh, humility sandwich that doesn't taste very good, but God damn, is it transformative? Brussels sprouts taste like shit, but they're good for you. And some of you might like Brussels sprouts, and that's okay. Not everyone has great taste buds. Thank that's you, so Mark. great, Mark. <laughs> Me and Kev are here. We've been listening. We've had to move around for reception, but this has been so amazing. I think what you were just kind of saying is a little bit of the, if you spot it, you got it. Because if that disrespect is connecting with you, it's because you have that disrespect for yourself maybe, right? Yeah, like it's, re- it's resonant. So which, which, how important is that to recognize if it's resonant then you know that's why everything is a mirror to the friction or the lack of liberation that we have within ourselves wow so great hey say hi to mark you didn't get to meet him before hey mark it was beautiful What's up, honey a lot of of amazing takeaway really he he just kept saying you were on mute he goes he's a beautiful person (laughs) he doesn't say that about people (laughs) i'll take that i'll take that i heard a lot about you on our uh on our talk when we had a uh our discussion well everything you said really i know spoke to me loud and clear and um i'm sure to a lot of our people yeah very neat Does anyone have any more questions? Any more thoughts? Well, um, it's an honor. You know, I I consider it such a privilege. You trade time 
for this and time is the one thing you can't get back and it's such an honor that you would give your time uh so i'm very appreciative and thank you for having me and uh what an opportunity to celebrate with such a great community well thank you for taking the time and for sharing your gifts and your knowledge i know that our heel squad is really eager to get better and so um you gave us a lot of nuggets to to take home with us so thank you and you guys i'll link mark's podcast and his website too in the description so i highly recommend listening to that too yeah one of the ones that i had recently that people were just like completely uh mind blown by is a woman named sarah baldwin i had her on twice one the first one was on how the nervous system works and the second one was on how attachment and the nervous system connect um, I honestly think those two episodes, not those specifically, but the content of them should be taught in every school. It's like every kid should learn how their nervous system works and how when you are attracted to unavailable people or you're reactive in relationship, there's actually nothing wrong with you. Like if you have poor relational patterns, there's actually nothing wrong with you. There's a brilliant survival template that's created that you want to change. And that's all that's happening. And I think so often we think there's something wrong with us because we have Mm -hmm. dysfunctional relational patterns, but they were functional. And Mm -hmm. so when we can think of it that way, it completely changes everything. Mark Groves is so amazing. I love him. I hope you guys loved him too. In the meantime, be nice people, make good choices and be present. This podcast and all related content published or distributed by or on behalf of Maria Menunos or mariamenunos.com is for informational purposes only and may include information that is general in nature and that is not specific to you. Any information or opinions expressed or contained herein are not intended to serve as or replace medical advice, nor to diagnose, prescribe, or treat any disease, condition, illness, or injury, and you should consult the healthcare professional of your choice regarding all matters concerning your health, including before beginning any exercise, weight loss, or healthcare program. If you have or suspect you may have a healthcare emergency, please contact a qualified healthcare professional for treatment. Any information or opinions provided by a guest expert or host featured within website or on company's podcast are their own, not those of Maria Menounos or the company. Accordingly, Maria Menounos and the company cannot be responsible for any results or consequences or actions you may take based on information or opinions. Hey, Hill Squad, we have been on quite the journey together, and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it, and we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heal Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heal events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heal Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much, and we love doing this thing called life with you.